Uh, yesterday we were um, in the conversation there was discussion about keeping the precepts and conduct of bodhisattvas and such like. So I thought I would start off with reading um, that passage I was referring to. Um, and this is from the Jataka stories, Jataka number 431. And um, the, uh, the, so the uh, prelude to the comment that is made is that in this particular lifetime, the, the Bodhisattva uh, was a, uh, an ascetic going by the name of Harita, Harita. And um, he had become a, a kind of resident teacher and uh, um, advisor for the king of Benares and his wife, uh, the queen. And so uh, uh, he goes to live in the grounds of the palace in, uh, in, Bar- in Benares. And it says, the great being from that time um, le- received his meals continually at the palace and lived there for 12 years. Now one day the king went to quell a disturbance on the frontier and committed the bodhisattva to the care of the queen, saying, do not de- neglect our field of merit, quote-unquote, the great teacher. Thenceforth she ministered to the great being with her own hands, so she offered food to him every day. Now one day she had prepared his food, and as he delayed his coming, she bathed in scented water, put on a soft tunic of fine cloth, and opened the lattice, lay down on a small couch, and let the wind play upon her body. And the bodhisattva, later on in the day, dressed in a goodly inner and outer robe, took his arms bowl, and walking through the air, came to the window. So casually mentioned that he flew up from the garden and entered through the, the upper window. As the queen rose up in haste, at the rustling sound of his bark garments, he wore, his robes are made of tree bark, um, uh, her robe fell off her, and a, an extraordinary object struck upon the eye of the great being. It's a very um, Victorian translation. <laughs> <laughs> The PTS in the early 20th century, late, late 19th century, so they're very, very modest in their expressions. An extraordinary object struck upon the eye of the great being. Then the sinful feeling that had been dwelling for countless eons in his heart rose up like a snake lying in a box and put to flight his mystic meditation. Being unable to fix his thoughts, he went and seized the queen by the hand and forthwith they drew a curtain round them. After misconducting himself with her, he partook of some food and returned to the park. And then every day, thenceforth, he acted after the same manner. His misconduct was blazed abroad. It means like everyone was talking about it. It was blazed abroad throughout the whole city. The king's ministers sent a letter to him saying, Harita, the ascetic, is acting thus and thus. So the king was out at the frontier, and the ministers wrote to the king and sent this message. The king thought, they say this being eager to separate us because of um, being jealous of the influence that the great uh, yogi had on the king. And he disbelieved it. When he had pacified the border country, he returned to Benares, and after marching in solemn procession round the city, he went to the queen and asked her, Is it true that the holy ascetic Harita misconducted himself with you? It is true, my lord. He disbelieved her also and thought, "Eh, I will ask the man himself. And going to the park, he saluted him, and sitting respectfully to one side, he spoke the first stanza in the form of a question. Friend Harita, I oft have heard it said, 
A sinful life is by your reverence led. I trust there is no truth in this report, and thou art innocent in deed and thought. So he even rhymed it. He thought, so this is the, the great being, the Bodhisattva, then thinks, If I were to say I am not indulging in sin, this king would believe me. But in this world there is no sure ground like speaking the truth. This is the key passage. They who forsake the truth, though they sit in the sacred enclosure of the bow tree, cannot attain to Buddhahood. I must needs just speak the truth. In certain cases a bodhisattva may destroy life, may take what is not given him, commit adultery, drink strong drink, but he may not tell a lie. Attended by deception, that violates the reality of things. Therefore, speaking the truth only, he uttered the second stanza. In evil ways, great king, as thou hast heard, caught by the world's delusive arts, I erred. Hearing this, the king spoke a third stanza. Vain is man's deepest wisdom to dispel the passions that within his bosom swell. Then Haritau pointed out to him the power of sin and spoke the fourth stanza. There are four passions in this world, great king, that in their power are, are overmastering. Lust, hate, excess, and ignorance, their name, knowledge, can here no certain footing claim. So very good at scanning and rhyming with these poetic stanzas. The king, on hearing this, spoke the fifth stanza, endowed with holiness and intellect, the saintly Harita wins our respect. So the fact that he acknowledged that and acknowledged that he got lost in delusion, the king respected. Then Harita, the Bodhisattva, spoke the sixth stanza. Ill thoughts with pleasant vices, if combined, corrupt the sage to saintliness inclined. Then the king, encouraging him to throw off sinful passion, spoke the seventh stanza. The beauty that from purest hearts doth shine is marred by lust born of this mortal frame. Away with it, and blessings shall be thine, and multitudes thy wisdom shall proclaim. And the Bodhisattva recovered the power to concentrate his thoughts, and observing the misery of sinful desire, he spoke the eighth stanza. Since blinding passions yield a bitter fruit, all growth of lust I cut down to the root. So saying, he asked the king's leave, and having gained his consent, he entered his hermit's hut. Fixing his gaze upon the mystic circle, he entered into a trance and came forth from the hut, sitting cross-legged in the air. He taught the king the true doctrine and said, Great king! I have incurred censure, I've done something worthy of criticism, in the midst of the people by reason of my dwelling in a place where I ought not. But be thou vigilant, now I must return to some forest free from all taint of womankind. So he's blaming. <laughs> Unfortunately, blaming the uh, presence of women rather than uh, his own mind. But again, this is uh, an, an antique text. And amidst the tears and lamentations of the king, he returned to the Himalaya, and without falling away from mystic meditation, he entered the Brahma world. So uh, that's not the only uh, occasion where that happens. Uh, I think uh, I haven't checked it, but I think Jataka number 66 as well, he also falls in love with the queen. And then uh, there's this wonderful uh, dialogue between the king and the, and the queen saying, oh dear, our wonderful teacher has fallen into stupidity. What can we do to rescue him? And so the, the, the king and the queen plot together. And so the king gives him permission to, to go off and, and live together with the queen. And, and they set up home, but they set, he gives them this really grungy little house. 
and then and then the queen makes him go out to work, and he hasn't got any kind of a trade. Yeah, he's a yogi, so he doesn't know he doesn't have to do anything. He can't. He's not a carpenter or a cook or can't do anything. And so then she she gets more and more kind of grumpy and difficult with him. And finally, he's oh, this home life, household life is terrible. You know, I, I really uh, I really have uh, made a mistake here. And so he asks the, the queen, saying, "Would it be okay if we kind of ended this relationship?" And she said, "Oh well, well if you must, you know." Yeah, and then she sort of gives a big wink to the king, and it was Ananda and Upalawana with the with the king and queen. And so, she said, okay, well, I suppose, uh, well, maybe the king will have me back again. I don't know. And then the king, said, she goes back, and the the uh, the bodhisattva begs forgiveness, says, "I was really foolish. I'd fallen away from the practice." And, and um, and so uh, hopefully you'll accept the queen back. Says, well, I don't know. <laughs> and then, <laughs> But the whole thing was a plot between the king and queen to, to, to rescue their, their beloved teacher who'd sort of lost the track. So in that instance, the Buddha's two students, Upalawana and Ananda, were the ones who helped keep him on track as a bodhisattva. So in, northern, in the northern Buddhist world, that kind of thing would be taken as an expedient device on behalf of the bodhisattva as a teaching method. And I would say, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it was just the teacher getting lost. And then the students helping the teacher out. There's a much more prosaic, down-to-earth fashion. Similarly, it's like this. It's not, it wasn't a sort of a specific teaching that the Bodhisattva was giving to, to the, the king and queen. It was getting distracted, getting lost. So, um, Anyway, that's my, my take on those things. And then the, uh, if you want to look up the, the dialogues between the Buddha and two, it's with two other wanderers from a different sect, one called um, Suttava and the other one called Sajja, and they're in suttas number seven and eight in the Book of the Nines. And it's in those dialogues then he spells out how it is that an arahant c- cannot break any of the precepts. Can't break the, at least the, the first four of the five precepts. And uh, so that the, um, uh, that is saying like how it's impossible, it's, uh, it, it's something that can't happen. So if that's Book of the Nines, suttas uh, seven and eight, if you're interested to follow that up. So, uh, going to the next Dhamma talk um, in this section of Seeing Dharma, um, this last one, it seems to be a Dhamma talk that Lumpucha gave to the Western Sangha, probably when he came um, to visit Wat Pananachat, and it will be about 1980 or 81, because of the, a couple of the names mentioned. Um, and so it might have been that they, they went over to visit him at Wat Wapong, but he would come to Wat Nanashat, the international monastery, from time to time. So my suspicion was it was a time when he went over to Wat Nanashat and they got the tape recorder out and, and uh, asked him to offer some teachings. So this is called Fumbling and Groping. So I'm not sure what uh, um, the tie is for that, but uh, 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 Paul Brighter's, this is Paul Brighter's translation, so there's probably some uh, very um, sort of familiar lo- uh, local expression, like kind of searching around in the dark. Anyway, it's called fumbling and groping. One who has passed beyond doubt no longer needs to grope. If doubt hasn't been removed... You sit and try to develop samadhi, reciting verses to invite the deities and invoke their help. It's just superstitious attachment to rites and rituals. This is talking on a subtle level. The stream-enterer has no doubts. There are still things that he has not realized, but he has no doubts. He's removed the first three fetters. 
belief in the self, doubt, and superstition. Uh, the mental afflictions of the stream enterer are of one type. Those of the once returner, at the next level, another. Those afflictions become more refined and subtle. What is heavy for a child and what is heavy for an adult are different. Through the stages to attaining the full awakening of the Arahant level, it's all different. The afflictions may have the same name, but the weight is different. However, they will all eventually be finished and gone. So just to, to refresh for people who may be not familiar with uh, these four different levels, so that they're built around what are called the ten fetters, or the ten samyojana, the ten kind of shackles or bonds that, that um, bind the heart. So the stream enterer breaks the first three, which is uh, uh, self-view, sakayaditi. Second one is doubt, doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. And then the third one is silapataparamasa, the um, attachment to conventions, superstitions, and so forth. Then the next level is called the once-returner, sakadagamin. And the, for sakadagamin, the once-returner, then they, uh, they still have uh, uh, sense desire and ill will, karma raga and biapada, but they are reduced, they're diminished, so that they still will, can experience aversion or anger or, or sensual desire, but they are, they're diminished. And then the next level, the third level, is anagami, meaning a non-returner, and not one who, having reached the level of non-returner, will not be born in the human world, but uh, any future rebirth will be in the, um, the pure abodes, the Sudavasa, these five particular Brahma worlds that are um, where anagamis uh, have their, their, their domain. And um, so an anagami, they let, they, they've completely let go of sense desire, karma raga, and ill will, biapada. But they still have five of the, uh, of the ten fetters that they are subject to. And those are rupa raga, which is uh, attachment to um, uh, blissful states based on form, so like uh, f- uh, jhana, states, uh, jhana concentration states based on form. Arupa raga, states of jhana based on formlessness. So basically attachment to bright and wholesome, so beautiful states of mind um, and attachment to identification with those. Then the um, the uh, so those are uh, the um, samyojana the, the the fetters six and seven and then number eight is asmi mana asmi means I am mana is conceit so the conceit of identity so whereas sakayaditi self view is uh, attachment to the body the personality and coarse aspects of, of self asmi mana is the mind's identification with the, the feeling of selfhood, even if it's not associated with a body or a personality or, or um, uh, anything uh, very distinct at all, but just the feeling of a, a being who is an agent, who is an experiencer, who is a doer. So the very subtle um, qualities of selfing, as Mimana, that's the eighth of the ten. And then the ninth is Udacha, which means restlessness, which is not the restlessness of fidgeting on your cushion. It's more a very subtle kind of, I would say, subtle kind of restlessness as I understand it. So it's to do with time, that there is some other um, uh, time up ahead which is more promising or has got 
um, something that's more real or more uh, more attractive uh, than, than this. So the restlessness to get away from this, to get to that. So it's a subtle attachments to time and location that over there there is something that's more promising, more real, that the Dhamma's over there. Well, it's, it's some other time. It's not absolutely here. So that restlessness is, ooh, what's that? It's a, a very subtle kind of um, not being fully attentive to the, the present reality. And then the very last one, number 10 on the list, is avicca, ignorance, so not seeing things clearly. That's the, the tenth of the ten fetters, the most subtle and and insidious uh, of, of all. So when Lumpur Chah is ref- referring to these different levels, then that's the, um, that's the schema of those, those ten, ten uh, fetters and divided up into those four different chunks. You won't be tested on this. <laughs> no exams will be, will, be, uh, uh, will be given to you. Uh, but... Uh, uh, so he's emphasizing the level of, of stream entry here, and particularly the ending of doubt. Even though there is, st- there is still something remaining, it doesn't matter, there'll be no ill effects. The groping mind that doubts and wonders, is this right, is that wrong? That is done with. When one realizes the truth of cause and effect, there's no more doubt as to what is right and wrong. If people at this level act correctly, and someone calls them wrong, they'll not be moved by that but they also won't argue with anyone over it. An argument between someone with doubt and someone with no doubt will probably not get very far. That's a, an English understatement, I think. with <laughs> uh, a, 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 an important point. Lumpur Sumedha has often talked about his own, uh, very like Lumpur Chah, he was a, a major doubter in his early life as a, as a monk and was get really tied up in knots about um, you know, doubts about the practice and um, uh, how to, to work with that you know, doubting, wondering and uh, insecure mind. But uh, he, um, uh, what I feel is, is helpful to understand, I think I mentioned this yesterday, is that it's not just a generalized doubt about you know, all and everything, but specifically the doubt that is, is dropped at the at that second with that second fetter is doubt about what the path is and what the path is not so that sense of okay this is the way forward this is what leads to peace this is what leads to freedom so there can be other sort of questions or, or um, uncertainties that arise but what's as I understand it and uh, that uh, I feel is a most helpful and an accurate way to relate to it is that's what's fallen away, that, that doubt, okay, this is the way forward, this is, this is what to do, what not to do. And as Lumpur Chah puts it here, there's no more doubt about what is right and what is wrong. So, okay, this is the path that, that leads towards peace, this is what leads to, to confusion. And uh, interesting, when uh, in, in quite a number of Lumpur Sumato's Dhamma talks, when he talks about his own sense of getting beyond doubt and um, with the practice, then he, uh, he reflected on um, what he depended on, and in his early days, he certainly greatly admired Lumpur Chah and was looking up to him um, uh, in a, uh, with with great respect and love and admiration. But uh, then, in terms of of looking at his own feeling for the practice and his own sense of, of certainty, he said, "Well, what would I do if um, if Lumpur Chah just, just announced to the Sangha that he was going to disrobe and get married?" 
Or what would I do if Ajahn Buddha Dasa said, Buddhism is a farce, I'm going to become a Christian? You know, what would I do if uh, the, the Dalai Lama said, actually, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is far more meaningful than, than Buddhism, so I'm going I'm, I'm to join the, uh, the communists? You know, what would I do? How would that affect me? So he would test himself with those kind of contemplations. What, what would that do to you? you know, and, and so dropping those sort of unthinkable thoughts into his mind. And then, uh, as many of you I'm sure will have heard him say or have read in his books, he was quite... Um, quite pleasantly surprised, happily sort of uh, recognizing that, well, I would just carry on practicing. What else would there be to do? I would just get my bowl and go out on the arms round in the morning and <laughs> and uh, practice because what, what, what other people do, uh, it's up to them. But um, this is what I, I, I see as of benefit and this is um, what I, I recognize as a skillful path. And so that was you know, his way of exploring that, so testing himself. And to um, to get a sense for that quality of of certainty of of not being dependent on being inspired or, or the, the what people around uh, are choosing to do. But okay, you know, what what do you see for yourself? And do you do you trust the the value and the impact of your own experience, or are you totally dependent on being inspired or being given um, affirmation by uh, those around and about you? So, anyway, uh, I'll leave it there for a moment. So, any questions, thoughts, either on the Jataka story or the or, um, this um, beginning of this Dhamma teaching? Yes? These, uh, let's call them spiritual attainments, like stream entering uh, and, uh, and the end of handship are very often portrayed uh, portrayed like the result of a sudden insight or an aha moment, a kind of quantum leap often looks like, at mm -hmm. least my, my impression might be wrong. Uh, is it possible that it's also a much more gradual process that brings you there and you find, and one finds that they are in that situation without having uh, sudden, let's say, moment of uh, discovery. Yeah, well, the, um, it, it's interesting that um, the, the Buddha actually makes a statement um, in, in one of the suttas, there's no sudden penetration of final knowledge, that um, the, uh, no, uh, knowledge and liberation is by gradual practice, gradual learning, gradual realization. Mm -hmm. I was just look, reading it yesterday, actually. Um, so he makes a specific point of that. And then um, there's a, a particular another a, 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 in a different sutta. He says, just like um, the um, uh, the you know the, the people can uh, say envisage the the continental shelf of India that it, it slopes you know, gradually for a, a time, and then and then the the, the sea floor falls away. Um, um, but uh, there is a the the actual immersion into the sea is a is a gradual process, and that uh, it gets deeper later on. But it, it uh, it's a um, by, it's a, a gradual awakening, as it were. The um, the the stories that you get, and also both within uh, the uh, so the enlightenment stories of some of the 
the great arahant uh, nuns and monks in the Terigata, Terigata, um, and also in the sort of Zen stories you get from from Japan or China, then you do get these sort of sudden events. But it also, uh, I think it's also important to gather, get us, uh, appreciate that there's a, a long preparation. There's the sort of that long sort of shelving process before the kind of the the penny drops, as it were. There's a, uh, a a long sort of preparation, and you know, so some of them are quite dramatic, uh, or and seem to be suddenly going from from ignorance to arahantship. But it's uh, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily mention a lot of the preparation that w- that was there already. But uh, one, I would say that's that's implied in, in that, so that um, someone like uh, Patachara, you know, she is described how she. Um, she was grumbling about, you know, how, yeah, I've done my work, I've been a good nun, I've been practicing for years, how come I haven't realized anything, you know? And that, uh, and then um, she uh, was, she came back to her kuti and she washed her feet with a, a dish of water. And then just watching the water flowing down, uh, you know, flowing down the slope away from, from her feet. And then she walked into the, into the hut and then there was a, a candle burning and she put the, put the candle out. And then she was totally enlightened, putting the candle out, you know, as she ducked uh, the uh, the uh, the fire of the of the candle. But I would say it was because of <laughs> a lot of preparation and a lot of paramita running up to that point. It wasn't just oh, if I just go and put a candle out, you know, that <laughs> put, like the going out of a flame. That's going to be enough. Or get the dish of water, start you know washing your feet for hours on end. Um, so that uh, that. Um, that kind of spiritual maturity is 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 uh, a part of it, even though there might be some kind of uh, final moment that where, where things click, as it were. Okay, so to continue, belief in the body as being or belonging to oneself, first fetter, doubt, second, and superstition, third, are all simply groping. For example, when we sit in samadhi for a long time, do long periods of walking meditation, confess our transgressions of the precepts, and thus feel that we've purified our minds, this is all blind belief in rites and rituals. It's just groping. It's like if you walk along in this cramped little hall and you keep bumping into the corner of a bench, then there is groping. If you were just sitting there and didn't go and bump into something, there wouldn't be this reaction. For this groping to occur, there has to be something to set it off. Others don't walk into the bench, so their legs won't hurt, and they won't have this reaction. I'm trying to illustrate it as simply as possible. Why is there groping? There is doubt. So there is this discomfort in the mind. Did I do this? Did I do that? It depends on intention as the cause. A mosquito bites you, and you brush it away, and then you notice, Oh, my hand is full of blood. Uh, the mosquito's dead. You don't need to start groping at this point. Did I create some bad karma here? Did I have intention to kill it? Even if there was no intention, I'm supposed to be mindful. You can get really worked up over it, groping around. If you just see that the mosquito died, and you're aware that it was an unintended happening on your part, you let it go. You can return to your dwelling later and not be chewing it over. Tomorrow, you won't be bothered by second-guessing. You get straight about your intentions in this way and conquer the anxiety. Then, when you sit down to meditate, 
you needn't return to this memory and worry over it. It's not like walking into the bench. If you walked into it, you would have to put some balm on your leg. There's something there, some pain. So there is this reaction. The mind is apprehensive and unsettled over something. So there will be this groping. Lumpur is trying to give a, a, a sort of tangible example. Like if you bump into things, then <laughs> then there's a, a, a bruise, there's a there's a reaction, there's the pain coming from that, and and equating that with the mind taking hold of uh, of uh, doubts and questions and uh, getting lost in in that kind of uncertainty. Um, also, that uh, the uh, the kind of belief. Also, earlier on when he said. Um, reciting verses to invite deities and invoke their help for your samadhi or um, doing long periods of walking meditation or sitting for a long time or just confessing the transgressions of the precepts and thus feel that we've purified our minds this is all blind belief so just the actions in themselves that's kind of the essence of Sila Pataparamasa the idea that reciting some words or, or following some actions are intrinsically purifying or liberating that was you know, so much of the Buddha's teaching was was around many many of the dialogues with different wanderers and ascetics were was about so you know, how does this purify you know what what is this uh, what, what effect is this having or are you sure that it's having this effect because there's such a strong belief in these kind of processes where you invite the devas to come and help you to concentrate or you you recite some words or you um, uh, that you uh, you take some kind of action to to purify yourself, and that um, it, uh, over and over again in the, in the Buddha's teaching and what Lumpur Cha is pointing to here, it's it's not just the the going through the the motions of the action or reciting the words that makes a difference. Everything relies on on right view and the and the, the uh, quality of attitude and intention. So, like in other religious forms, you have. Like uh, bathing in the river Ganges to wipe away your wash away your your bad karma, or um, or if you're a Catholic, reciting Hail Marys, you're going to um, not that I've ever been a Catholic, but uh, as I understand it, going to confession with a priest and reciting Hail Marys and such like to to um, pay off the the um, the wrongdoings. Um, that uh, these uh, are. Uh, very much an object to the, the Buddha's attention that um, just the actions in themselves can't possibly be liberating uh, or purifying and, and so they are skillful means perhaps and uh, they can be put to good use but in and of themselves just the reciting of some sounds or, or, or walking up and down or sitting in one spot for a long time again as Lung Chao would say you know I've seen chickens sit on their nests for two or three days you know they don't have a a lot of samadhi, and they don't have a lot of wisdom, but they can they can really sit still for a long, long time. You know? um, so that uh, that was a, a a kind of steady working against the superstitious uh, tendencies of the mind. Any thoughts, questions? Yes. Yes, I could add about the purifying the mind from the book that I read. Uh, from Ajahn Rupudun, uh, I have this very thick book, uh, as big as the steel, steel, steel foil, stillness foil. Mm-hmm. Oh, he mentioned at one time his conversation with Nongkuman. This I remember very well because I'm trying to analyze it. Uh, that 
he had moved from an what anakami up 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 and the way he mentioned seemed like he had meditated and had the jakku yana so he had seen something is a jakku like when we talking about the dhamma jakka pavatasu right it got it got to have some jakku dhamma jakku so imagine something like he had seen some 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 mind his mind Okay, and and it looked uh, bright and everything, and then it looked like some of the kilesa, maybe the uh, sixteen upat upat kilesa, maybe uh, aswimana or uh, whatever you know the, the details, and it coming in 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 different colors and different things and wavelength and hit his mind and then some go in and some browse mm -hmm. out and that mean that how many percent that he could. Uh, block that kilesa, and now I left about but twenty percent. I haven't be able to to protect my my mind. So I'm now at that level. This is sort of like what I remember, and I have been thinking a lot about it. So what do you think? Meaning that we I don't think about it. Yeah, but different people have different experiences. You know, you can't. Yeah, that uh, things appear in different ways. Like, like I was talking about that that young gentleman who was on the retreat, who had this extraordinarily strong visionary capacity. That he, his mind created very very strong visual images. I had, you know, I, I couldn't put myself into his shoes at all. That that. Uh, you know, he he saw in very vivid colors and very very distinct forms these uh, like these two large bubbles coming together and when the two bubbles met the words appeared written like written in his mind thought is surface tension i thought wow <laughs> i was completely uh, i have never had any kind of experience remotely like that but for him that was like an everyday occurrence it's like saying so that particular insight or that particular thing took shape in that way he said these these huge bubbles like the size of a football stadium they came together and where the two bubbles met there was this these words thought is surface tension thought, well that's kind of an interesting insight but uh, it was impossible for me to put myself into his shoes or say what would it be like to experience things like that but you know his meditations are all like that it's like very colorful and and vivid in that, that kind of a way um so different people have different experiences so lumpur dun is describing what he experienced to lumpur man so fine yes that's his experience uh yeah i i wouldn't make anything of it other than just well there are some words by you know a conversation between two great beings Satu, so be it. What exactly it might mean, I wouldn't try to pin it down and make anything of it. So you know, the the if we read something or hear something and it has a, it strikes a chord. You know, that says, oh, that sounds interesting, or that 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 resonates with something that I've experienced. And we you know we can take that and use that. But again, talking about doubt, sometimes. We read experiences of people's experiences or visions or different events, and you go, "Wow, what's that about?" And and if if it's really uh, something that's unclear or doesn't have any kind of intuitive meaning for you, I just leave it alone. Don't make anything of it. Just, 
It's like another of the leaves in the forest. You can just leave them on the trees. And <laughs> okay, what well, is my mind creating suffering out of this? If the answer is yes, let go. If the answer is no, then carry on as you are. That's the that's in, in a sense that establishing right view in relationship to experience. That's that's the the way to do it. Okay, so to continue. There is the view that the body is ours. The Buddha says it isn't ours, and we come to yield on this point with, with the first letting go of the first fetter. We recognize that this is true and don't need to grope any more. The next fetter is doubt. Previously unsure about all phenomena, we are no longer in doubt now that we have relinquished the belief in a self. Then there's attachment to rites and rituals blind belief in the efficacy of conventional modes of behavior. The three are connected, one leading to the other, three types of mental affliction. From seeing the nature of the body and letting go, doubt disappears. And when there is no doubt, there's no more groping. This applies to all the aggregates, body, feeling, perceptions, conceptualization, and consciousness. Let's speak about it in terms of the Eightfold Path. It begins with right view. If your view is right, then thinking will be right, and all the other factors will be right. But it will be right to a limit, depending on the individual. There is the right view of stream entry, the right view of a once-returner, the right view of the non-returner. None of these have yet reached the supreme right view of the arahant. On each level of the path, there is a corresponding level of right, right view on the rest of the eight. But there's no doubt from the beginning of entering the stream. There is right view for each level. That of the stream enterer is limited, unlike that of an arahant. But such a person still will not have any wrong understanding. When there's right view, wrong view cannot also be present. When there is no wrong at all within a person's being, that is the arahant level. When there is still some wrong within a person, she's at stream entry or some other lesser level. She cannot yet go where the arahant can go, but she's reached a certain level of right. When right comes to fulfillment, she'll be an arahant, saying, I have reached the limit of my strength, I have lifted as much as I can, has a different meaning when it's spoken by a child and by an adult. They're the same words, but the meaning is different. Getting to the end, doubt is finished. Mind and body are relinquished. Everything is exhausted and finished with. You don't desire the body, you don't desire the things of mind. Their power over you is finished. Nothing remains. Why would there be anything left? If there is, let the dogs and cats have it. What's left, if anything is left, is your doubt. So I feel that that's a very good analogy. Um, that say, I've reached the limit of my strength. I've lifted as much as I can. The, the words are the same, but for a, a small child saying that and an adult saying that, then the, the meaning is different. And so that um, he's sort of exploring this, uh, say, the, um, that quality of right view, or these varying levels of, of refinement, and that you know, right view is going to be affected uh, to some degree by ignorance as long as there is, uh, the mind hasn't reached arahantship, so there's going to be some kind of blurring or, or uh, distortions or, or um, elements of, uh, of I and me and mine that, that come into the picture. But uh, he's sort of describing that sense of 
of um, that uh, increasing quality or the clarity of right view as things evolve. We have to hear the teachings and then let go. Cast the concepts aside and really practice. The knowledge that will dry up doubt comes from doing, from effort in practice. It doesn't happen from asking questions of someone else. I think that some of the Western monks have been asking him a lot of questions. <laughs> My kind of reading of the subtext there. It? Yeah. it doesn't happen from asking questions of someone else. But it's hard to maintain enthusiasm for exerting ourselves in practice. We want to get attainment quickly, but we tend to be lazy. The Buddha said, doubts will be exhausted in the mind of the Brahmin because of unflagging practice. It won't come from anywhere else. So he urged us to apply ourselves with consistent effort. Whatever arises, pick it up, examine it, and see it clearly. If you can't yet see it for what it is, put it aside for the time being. Today you meet it through this explanation, but only on the level of knowledge. What you don't yet understand, you have to put it aside and practice. Too hot, too cold, neither is right. Not fast or slow, that's not it. You can't find where it is. This is something that only you can know. When you try to explain it to someone else, it doesn't work. Another cannot truly believe simply by hearing. It's something to be contemplated with constant, even mindfulness. If you practice unceasingly, there will come a moment when you know this clearly. But you have to give up desire for it to happen. If you don't give up this desire, you won't come to know. Right now, all you know is desire. When you let go, that's it. Instantly, things are different. You can practice with the attitude that if you attain some realization, that's fine. And if you don't, never mind. That way you have ease and comfort with your practice. It lies in this direction, not in the direction of wishing and struggling. Uh, a few significant points there. The kind of nonchalant attitude that, uh, so working hard, and then, well, if this goes somewhere helpful, okay. If it doesn't, okay. <laughs> so a kind of nonchalance, um, even if uh, even if you don't really mean it. <laughs> Just even making those things uh, clear in the mind, or setting that, that framework in the mind can be very, very helpful. And so that's, in a sense, letting go of that um, agitated craving of tanha, uh, as he puts it at the end they're not in the direction of wishing and struggling, but practice with the attitude that if you attain some realization, that's fine. If you don't, never mind. So that effort is being put in, but you're not fixated on a, on a particular result at a particular time. There's more of a, 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 yeah, if it works, fine. If it doesn't work, that's fine too. Yeah, Easy come, easy go. Um, even if part of the mind is going, yeah, but I really want it, just to... <laughs> To plant that thought of easy come, easy go. Yeah. If it ripens, it ripens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Then uh, that's uh, a, a skillful framework for, uh, for the practice. The, um, the also, he's making the, the, um, the point here that um, uh, knowledge that will dry up doubt comes from doing, from effort in practice. It doesn't come from asking questions of someone else. So, again, this is a very uh, frequent theme of people trying to end their doubts by asking the teacher who understands everything. <laughs> Ajahn, you understand. You tell me what's, what's true, what's real. So, over and over and over again, Lumpur would say, 
hand it back to you, to you and say, answer it for yourself. Uh, and that, um, yeah, I can tell you this, but then you're just hearing these words and that you don't really know. So it's important for you to to um, to figure it out or see things uh, for yourself. So that then uh, that encouragement to say be self-reliant and take re- and take responsibility uh, for the practice. Uh, another aspect of people asking questions that um, I've often mentioned was was very very striking. Even though I couldn't understand Thai at all, really, when I was living there with Lumpur. Um, he seemed to have a way, when people ask questions, he almost never seemed to a- answer a question in the terms in which it was asked. He would somehow receive the question, kind of rearrange the pieces and hand them back to the person, and then they would get them to answer the question themselves. It's kind of difficult to describe, but it's like you'd kind of dismantle it, rearrange it, sort of pick apart the assumptions that were being made, and and then hand the pieces back, and then... And then over and over again, again, I couldn't really understand the language very well, but um, just seeing the dynamic of how that worked, and then over and over again, people would really answer their own questions. And so when uh, somebody once, who was also noticing how Lumpur could do this over and over again, and also with all sorts of different people, different situations, they said, how do you do that? How, how do you enable people to answer their own questions? And then he made the comment um, a, a few times, I believe, uh, said, if they didn't already know the answer, they couldn't ask the question in the first place. Which takes a bit of, kind of getting your head around. So he said, they, they, so if you didn't already know the answer, you couldn't pose the question in the first place. So you help people to go back to where their question came from, and that's where they find the answer. So... <laughs> Which is quite an interesting theme for contemplation. When, when, you've got, what, when you want to ask a question, or that, that you have doubts about something, then following it back to where the question came from and then seeing what you find there. Any questions? <laughs> that was, that's a loaded one. Yeah, the uh, the difference between chanda, that sense of interest and enthusiasm, but without self-centered, agitated craving, um, and tanha, which is that self-centered, self-centered, agitated craving that uh, uh, so much uh, of our practice depends on getting a, f- uh, fe- a clear feeling of how different they are from each other. And uh, I must say, I have used that kind of nonchalance of like, well, okay, if it comes together, it comes together. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And that that uh, is helpful just to plant that in the mix not to be lazy or uncommitted but just to loosen that tanha <laughs> tone that can easily take over and to just say that you're making effort you're you're committed you're interested but you're not fixated on or or obsessive about getting a particular result or or having a, some kind of progress So, so he goes on to explain or give another give another example. You may own a diamond, for example. It falls into the water, and you get very upset. You keep on searching in the water, trying to find it, not caring how hungry or tired you get. Finally, you may think it over and decide, never mind. If I get it back, that's okay. If it's lost, that's okay too. 
Then you can return home without the burden of worry. The crucial moment is when you let go and give up your obsession with it. If you keep on thinking, oh, what a terrible loss, where can I find it, this is really bad, why did this have to happen? You're only increasing your suffering. If you can accept whatever happens, whether you get the diamond back or not, you'll feel better. There'll be some calmness then. You don't need to waste too much energy on it. Take care of yourself. Pay attention to the things that you have and keep developing and increasing mindfulness. If you develop it, first and foremost above other things, you won't be mistaken and your formal meditation practice will certainly not suffer. You probably have doubts about what you're supposed to do in your practice. This is it, right, right here. But you really have to keep at it to make mindfulness complete, increasing it gradually until you can be aware fully and clearly of everything that happens. When your mindfulness becomes really clear and bright, knowledge will be born. Then you're aware of whatever occurs. This knowledge that comes from having firm, clear mindfulness will be the cause for wisdom as you come to know and see things as they really are. Without mindfulness, this won't happen. So, make your mindfulness as great as you are able. It is the extraordinary treasure that can support your knowledge and awareness and enable you to enter a state of peace. It is the Buddha himself. It will help support and admonish you. You can call it being near to God or Buddha, because when you have mindfulness, you will be awake. You will know and see, and you'll have restraint and caution. When the more subtle afflictions are still in the heart, lying hidden from your sight, it's because mindfulness is not complete. You do not see them, so they're able to hide from you. Whenever mindfulness is there in sufficient force to clarify things, it makes the mind bright. It makes your wisdom clear. It's like putting water into a bowl. You can look into the bowl and see your face in it when the water is still and clean. Just as with mindfulness, you can see yourself. And not just yourself. Your awareness will extend to many things. Even if a tiny insect falls into the water, you see it. If the water is stirred up or unclean, you can't see much at all. You won't be able to see your reflection clearly, and if the, but if the water is still and clean, you can see the ceiling. If there's a lizard on the ceiling, you'll see it reflected in the still water. Having mindfulness is similar to that. There'll be restraint and caution because of the, the knowledge and sensitivity that has been born of mindfulness. And this is uh, this kind of uh, continuity of mindfulness uh, um, was something that Lumpur stressed uh, a lot more. Uh, obviously, there were um, many periods of formal form meditation, group meditation, or encouragement to be practicing meditation by uh, yourself. But probably the the thing that Lumpur stressed most of all was a, a, a continuous mindfulness and paying attention through all the different actions and events uh, of the day, um, whether it was physical work or eating food or, or um, uh, sitting in meditation or whatever it might be, that that sense of a, of a continuity and particularly following your moods, the mindfulness, not just of actions like sitting, standing, walking, lying down, but that knowing when you're feeling elated and energized or feeling depressed and, and exhausted or irritated or, um, or happy, uh, that sense of being fully attentive, knowing you're the pattern of, of feeling and mood as it sort of takes shape and changes through the course of the day. And uh, it's also interesting his comment here saying, 
um, it, uh, make your mindfulness as great as you are able. It is the extraordinary treasure that can support your knowledge and awareness and, and enable you to enter a state of peace. It is the Buddha himself. It will help support and admonish you. You can call it being near to God or Buddha because when you have mindfulness, you will be awake. So that also brings to mind that um, verse from the Dhammapada that um, mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the heedless are as if dead already. So that, that, that uh, again, the Buddha is uh, similarly emphasizing uh, this is really valuable, <laughs> this makes all the difference, so pay attention. And that quality of, uh, of ongoing uh, mindfulness, awareness, is, uh, is the great treasure. And that uh, uh, even if the, mo- the moods and feelings uh, that arise can be very in- intense, very excited or very anxious or very uh, irritated, um, or activities can be, things can be very busy, very noisy, very um, mobile, but still you know, the, the quality of mindfulness can be present and uh, receive all of that and know that. So that then that very quality is what helps to keep the mind in a in a balanced and clear state in the midst of, of quietness or, or activity. Yes. Um, how does the idea of how does mindfulness fit with a sense of a path then? If if mindfulness is um, drawing more and more into the present experience and to the sense of being here there's nowhere to go and as you I was reflecting on what you were saying this morning about not you can't step forward you can't step back and you can't stay still it creates a sense of um, yeah just being here and, and there's nowhere to go and if you embrace that then um, to me that's how does that fit with the sense of a direction and it's like the mind is um, is, is here and the path then it gives it something to be drawn out into all of a sudden it gives it an outflow mm-hmm. um, so how do those two they seem like two different directions in a way that um, uh, the sense of there's nowhere to go is a kind of ending of, of the mind or it's, it's a kind of death and the sense of a path is, is a, it gives it a channel somehow um, so I, yeah, I, I struggle to with with those two, um, hold, holding them, them both. Yeah, good question. Um, uh, it's rather like uh, well, that the, the eightfold path is a path. <laughs> so I mean, that's what the word maga. You know, it's uh, very much uh, and repeatedly used as a metaphor by the Buddha, um, saying, you know, there's work to be done. The, the Dhamma doesn't need, uh, you know, the, the, the ultimate reality of things doesn't need to, any work done on it. But, you know, those, those uh, beings who have not yet realized that or attuned to that, then there's still work to be done. So our life is a mixture of that, the, the, the fundamental nature of, of the mind, which is, which is Dhamma, but then the conditioning of our birth, our, our thoughts, our feelings, our uh, you know, family history and so on. Then there there is uh, um, uh, attachments and identifications and things that are obscuring that 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 fundamental reality, which doesn't need to get anything or lose anything. And so the um, 
uh, in a way, our, our life is that, uh, or the practice is, is sort of attending to that, that meeting point of that timeless reality of Dhamma that doesn't need to get anything or get rid of anything. And then the condition of our, our birth, our, our human situation. And the um, a, a, uh, an easy way of relating to it is like if, you go, if you're going for a walk, you can be uh, enjoying the walk. You can be walking quite vigorously, but you're not trying to get anywhere. But you're, 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 there's a feeling of moving along, and you are you're physically going somewhere. But you're quite relaxed into the into the moment. You're fully with the action of walking, and then the the, the road or the path is rolling away under your feet. You're absolutely present uh, and attentive to the to the the moment. But the body is walking along. So there's both stillness and movement. So uh, the choice of the title of Rajan Chah's biography, "Stillness Flowing," is kind of <laughs> is relating to exactly that that mixture. And um, also, uh, the um, uh, in the T. S. Eliot's uh, the the, uh, the four quartets, the in the um, the dry salvages, the third of the four quartets, then there's this this uh, verse or this passage that gets quoted very often, uh, which is um, men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but a lifetime's death in love, ardor, selflessness and self-surrender. Or something given and taken uh, in, a, in a love, ardor, selflessness and self-surrender. So that image of the attending to the point of intersection of the timeless with time, it's kind of, that's what we're doing. And so that... Uh, the, that timeless reality of Dhamma uh, is is ever present. It doesn't. It's it's the fundamental reality of things, and it's and uh, that those teachings I was referring to this morning. I can't go forward, can't go back, can't stand still. It's a way of letting go of those habits of going forward, going back, or standing still, so that that timeless reality can be known. But then on the, the, the level of our birth, then the bell goes and it's time to go to the kitchen and help out chopping vegetables or, <laughs> or to, uh, to, to get up and go do walking meditation. You know, that the, 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 sort of the, the results of our actions and our choices and the, the, the effects of hum, the human world, living in the human world, that um, needs to be attended to as well. If you try to just hang on to the, the ultimate view and disregard the conventional, then you you end up in a mess, <laughs> and uh, and uh, sort of living in a very sort of disharmonious and confusing way. But if if you obsess on the on the conventional and and ignore the transcendent quality, then we're always sort of busy and never quite where we want to go, never never quite where we want to be. So that. That mixture of both uh, fully attending to the present and attuned to the present, and then letting the actions appropriate to the time, the place, and situation take shape, guided by mindful wisdom. Then those actions and, and the work that needs to be done is done, but it's not taken in a personal way, and the heart isn't tied to to time and place, and and those it's not making those those choices, those actions 
uh, into anything personal. So that's why also I, I, I like to talk about in, the, in terms of the Eightfold Path how uh, with the right resolution, Samar Sankapo, you know, that's about decision making and direction, that you know, making choices about what to, to resolve on and what, what direction to take. And then Samar Vayamo, right effort, you know, there has to be a way that effort is made and decisions are taken that is free of self-view, that is, is actually in accord with, the, with, 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 the, with reality, so that the, the effort is being made, but it's not stressful. Direction is being given, but it's not obsessive or, or fixated. So that, in a sense, getting a feeling for how choices can be made and effort can be exercised uh, free of self-view, free of that eye-making and mind-making, that's the... The, the kind of one of the, the key aspects of, of our practice and, and living, finding a way to and you know, do all the things that need to be done, like giving a dhamma reading or um, you know, looking after the, the buildings and so on. Um, that the things that need to be done are taken care of, but uh, that sense of in, engagement and uh, uh, responsibility is not stressful or burdensome or. It's not seen as any kind of finality, and that's a, a theme that comes through in you know, Lumpur over and over again, where he says, um, "Yeah, basically nothing can be done really." You know? <laughs> you, you kind of knowing that, and he did a lot of stuff in his life. You know, he was very active, very proactive, but um, that um, the, the encouragement just to, to to watch and be aware and to see what's going on and realize you, you know you're not, you can't really be in control. Uh, and if you think you are in control, then you're going to create suffering. But um, that um, essentially just paying attention to what's being experienced, doing what you can to work with it in a skillful way, and then let go of the whole thing. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's in mindfulness in the moment and kind of knowing through the moment. Is, is that enough? Um, without creating a sense of a path or a sense of a kind of a sense of direction or a sense of the mind going out into that it can just be this moment and what's um, yeah what's being learned through through the, through mindfulness within the moment itself yeah well i would say well the um our intentionality is part of this moment our capacity to act and make choices is part of this moment so it it, it sometimes mindfulness or you know, awareness is is sort of it's misread as a kind of passivity, They're sort of switching off the capacity to act. But our ability to respond to the time, the place, the situation—that is part of the way things are. It's not an intrusion. To again, to to um, to quote T. S. Eliot, where I think he got it wrong, <laughs> in the the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, where he says, "Do I dare disturb the universe?" As if taking action is a disturbance of the universe. And I would say, well, I don't quite agree there. It's, that it's it's not disturbing the universe to take action or to to, to speak out, or, but rather, you are part of the universe. So your action, your doing, your engagement is part of the way things are. It's not a, an intrusion upon the way things are. And it, so it, it's it's a bit of a subtle point, but sometimes it comes across that mindfulness is a sort of dis, disconnection. Or you're kind of unplugging um, 
from the response so natural responsivity of the of the system and that being attuned to the to the present being mindful of the present involves your action and, and your your kind of engagement because you are part of the present reality so it's and there's a balancing act around that so that there's a um there's a, a quality of peacefulness and stillness, even as flowing is going on. <laughs> like like Ajahn Shah's biography is kind of all around that that mixture. But I see in terms of flowing, time has flowed on, so let's end things there for today. <laughs>